0: Hey everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of the Review to Be Named podcast. I am Chris, the comics editor of the site, and today's podcast is focused solely on something we here at Review to Be Named have been talking about for a while, and that is DC Comics New 52. We have just recently come to the one-year anniversary of DC's complete relaunch and reboot of its entire publishing line, and we've spent a good amount of time covering these books, these comic books over the past year, both as the first issues were coming out and as they progressed over the past several months. So we're going to talk today about, uh, about I think it's 10 books that we think really epitomize some of the strengths and weaknesses of the line as a whole, and uh, hopefully you guys have been following them as, much as, as close as we have, and we'll have as much fun uh, talking about and dissecting them as we're about to. So with me today is site editor Jordan, who was uh, following the books as they were rolling out with me. We were writing the reviews of them week by week as we went on, so uh, we have been with this story right from the start, and we are excited to see where we are one year later. How's it going, Jordan? Going pretty well.
1: I'm, uh, I've am i been reading DC. Uh, for those of you who have been following our comics coverage, I was new to buying comics on a monthly basis when DC started. That was the first time I bought a, a comic as outside of the trades. So, this is fairly new to me, but I've been following a lot of these books all year and uh, did some quick catch up the last few days, as I think you did, Chris, on a few of the books that are on our weakness side of the trail. So, we'll have those of you who haven't been reading who are listening, um, if you've been thinking about getting into some of the books, we'll tell you some of the ones you should be reading and some of the ones you might want to skip out on over the course of this show.
0: Absolutely. And as always, if you agree or disagree with our assessments or think we missed an interesting post, we welcome any sort of feedback or additions to the discussion via email. Um, And Jordan can give you the name of the email address because it's escaping me at the moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can contact us via email at ReviewToBeNamed at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at ReviewToBeNamed. Or you can comment on the site itself, which is ReviewToBeNamed.com. So come over to the site If you're listening to the podcast on the website right now, go ahead and just comment while you're listening uh, right there on the site. Tweet at us or email us with whatever you'd like us to know, and uh, we're happy
0: to engage in the conversation with you. Absolutely. Now, Jordan, before we get started, are you uh, recording from a moving car by chance at the moment?
1: I'm not. Do I sound like I'm recording from moving? Yeah, it
0: sounds like there's a wind tunnel in the background.
1: That is the uh, fan I've got blowing on me. I'll uh, turn that off. Okay. It is—it's uh, about a thousand degrees where I am right now, and I don't have air conditioning, so I'm blowing a fan in my face. Oh,
0: I'm sorry. We'll try and uh, speed this along then, so we can get you back to cooler air. Oh uh, well, I'll—I'll uh,
1: I'll live. Right. Um, does that sound better, wind tunnel wise? Absolutely.
0: Okay. Now, that, now that you
1: mention it, we should do a podcast where we record strictly from moving cars. Yeah,
0: like, well, we can be, have like a death race scenario going on <laughs> as we're recording. We're, we're playing chicken while recording a podcast yeah. in the future. That's that's a thing that's going to happen now. That's going to be the game for the week. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever's kind of silent for the rest of the episode. Uh, they they know, are with a good. loser. Yeah. Okay, so let's kick things off by beginning with a book that we talked about a lot in the feature section that appeared on the site. Check it out if you get a chance to. We talked about the, the New 52 relaunch and broader strokes in a reasonable discussions uh, between, what is the name of this feature? Wow, uh, I'm just well, going all over the place right civilized now. Civilized Discussions Between Reasonable civilized, People. Civilized <laughs> Discussions Between Reasonable People. We need shorter names for these features, Jordan.
1: Yeah, I like to have feature names that are so long that no one can ever tell anyone else to read them.
0: Yeah. So in we did a recent feature where we talked about the broad strokes of what we thought went well or went poorly with the initiative one year later. Um, and one of the books that came up a few times in that discussion was Teen Titans, a book that I think both of us started off reading but then dropped a few issues in. We recently caught up a couple days ago just to... Familiarize ourselves for the purposes of the podcast. So let me start off by asking you, Jordan. What did you think of Teen Titans? Did it? Uh, did you regret dropping the book, or did you? Were you vindicated?
1: Um, I think you and I will disagree on which was our least favorite book to be catching up on of our of our weak side. Teen Titans was the actually the most painful for me to get through of the three like books we decided to catch up on to talk about the weaker side of the DC and um, I started reading that book because. Uh, I knew it was focusing on Tim Drake. Um, I'm a big Batman guy, and I think Tim Drake is my favorite Robin, probably, if I had to pick. So I knew he was going to play a big part in it, and I figured I'm going to give this book more than the one issue that I gave every New 52 book. So I read I read that for actually about four or five issues uh, before I just couldn't take it anymore and decided it wasn't worth my time. So catching up on the rest of it, uh, I feel vindicated having given up on it, because a lot of the problems that the book had in the early going actually were amplified as it continued on, and... Um, Yeah, that was the book where, as I was reading, you know, issue 9, 10, 11, I wanted it to be done. I wanted wanted to catch up so I could leave this book behind. What about you? What did you think catching up on it?
0: Yeah, I can't say that I was too sad to have missed out on the past year, having recently caught up on the recent issues. And it's a shame, too, because, as I mentioned in the print article, uh, Teen Titans is... Or should be one of the main gateways DC presents for fans of the characters and other mediums. They've had in the past decade uh, two very popular, well-received uh, animated series that focused on these characters: uh, Teen Titans. I think it was Teen Titans on Cartoon Network, and then l- most recently this past year, Young Justice, also on Cartoon Network. Um, the Teen Titans, I think, were one of, as a book, was one of the biggest. Uh, casualties of the reboot continuity in a sense that I'm not really sure DC had a good plan of how and where these characters fit. These were all the Teen Titans in this book are all fourth generation sidekicks for the most well, in Robin's case, fourth generation sidekicks, but second or third generation and all the others. So, uh, in the fictional universe that hasn't been around as long as the old DC was, it's kind of hard to uh, figure out where these characters fit. Especially alongside mentors who have had shorter careers, so it's I, I found it very, very directionless. Not at both writers and editors not really having an idea of how to have a Kid Flash that has never met a Flash or a Wonder Girl that has never met Wonder Woman, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I I think that definitely plays a part in it, and I mean, the strongest characterization in the early going, I still think throughout the book was Tim Drake, because Tim Drake has probably the... I mean, he's the one I'm most familiar with of them all. I think he has perhaps the most colorful and detailed history because the Bat continuity didn't get altered all that much. So I feel like I knew where he was throughout, and that was not the case with a lot of the other characters. And that might be because I'm less familiar with the other characters than I am with him, but I felt like he had a center, and a lot of the other characters, especially uh, Wonder Girl, who was, I guess, a potentially interesting character from the way she was being written. But it seemed like... The book wanted to make a big mystery of her, and it more just left me not understanding where where she was coming from. I don't know. do you feel the same way, or is it just that I was more familiar with Tim Drake?
0: Absolutely. I felt that way with all the characters, to be honest with you. I twelve issues in, I don't feel like I knew any of them even having the prior experience of being a pretty avid Teen Titans fan before the relaunch. Jeff Johns actually made his mark on the book, I think about seven or eight years ago, with the young heroes being more closely. Uh, mentored by older heroes and um, basically being apprenticed with the idea being that yes they're young now but in a few years they are going to be in their prime. These these are the people who we're going to be counting on to join the Justice League and be the world's greatest heroes which I think is a more rational approach than this whole loners on their own fighting a mysterious organization which one seems to be the premise of a good quarter of the books that came out that we watched in <laughs> the new 52. I don't know how they find the manpower to staff all these secret organizations. Yeah. I'm, I'm, cu- I'm curious
1: where, uh, where the actual organizations are. Cause it seems like every organization in the DC universe is a different level of secret organization.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like, do you, do they all like rent the same office space or something? Because <laughs> I don't know how else they operate.
1: They have some pretty awkward happy hours yeah. where everyone's standing around in a mask next to a water cooler.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, the, the whole approach just felt very, very 90s to me. Like, oh, they're all rebellious. They're all very angsty. Um, I The thing I like the most about the old incarnation of the Teen Titans um, in the prime of the series when uh, Jeff Johns and uh, Mike McCann was uh, drawing the series was that it, it's really celebrated that, you know, being a teenage superhero is hard, but it, it should also be fun. I mean, like, if you have superpowers and you're young, like, you're not always going to be... Like, it, it's, it should be fun. Like, it should be awesome. Like, you have superpowers. Your life is pretty great. Or at least, like, it should be... I feel like there are plenty of stories out there that do
1: teenage superpowers, and it's like, it seems like it should be awesome, but it also causes me all these angsty problems. Like, yeah. whenever you're writing teenagers, I understand that there's always going to be the... Like, there's gonna, they're going to have angst. They're going to have weird, awkward romance. And that's all, like... I think that can all be done in a fun way. But also, yeah, you should you should recognize that these are, like, you know young people who have amazing skills and are going to do stupid things with them and have fun with them.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of my... Uh, the last thing I'm going to leave off on is that none of them ever really sounded like teenagers for me, be it the overly awkward interact interactions in the romantic subplots, um, bunkers, grating Spanglish. I, I One of my biggest uh, pet peeves in comics is Spanglish or just... One like one or two like keywords of a foreign language just tossed in to remind you, like, oh, this character isn't a native English speaker, um, right? it, it
1: yeah. always, whenever they do the Spanglish thing, it always feels to me like someone who a either doesn't speak the language trying to do it, or someone who's pushing really hard to make it seem like the book is more multicultural than it actually is.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, Scott Lobdell was writing uh, comics back in uh, the '90s. Like he was, he was on most of the X books in the '90s. And I, it, just, it, it always just struck me as a very odd choice that on the book focusing on your youngest characters that you pick one of the most veteran writers in the industry to pair. It just seemed like such an odd pairing to me.
1: Yeah, I, I'd agree. You would think that Teen Titans would be a good place to bring someone new and fresh up.
0: Absolutely. Like somebody just off the top of my head, like Nick Spencer, for instance, who um, is one of the youngest voices in comics right now and is made his mark writing younger characters. Um, Okay, so let's move on. Let's uh, talk about another book, uh, Green Arrow. All right, um, so
1: I I can go ahead and and start us off by saying that Green Arrow is probably the worst of the books that we are are reading and discussing uh, for this particular show, uh, if I, I mean, if I had to say quality-wise, which is the worst, I would say Teen Titans was more aggravatingly mediocre. Green Arrow was more flat-out terrible. But I also thought that Green Arrow got a lot more interesting once Andy took over. Uh, there was a new writing team after issue six, I think it was.
0: No, there was uh, three writing teams in that um, span of issues. So, so who did I miss? Which the, one did I completely freeze over? The first three issues were J.T. Cruel, who was writing the book. I, I think that's how you say his name. J.T. Cruel was writing the book before. The relaunch, and he wrote the first three issues. The next three were uh, Keith Jiffen and artist Dan Jurgens co-writing, and then Ann Osenti took over with issue number seven.
1: See, and the the Jiffen stuff was was so mediocre that I didn't even remember that he'd been writing the book, and I read it today. So fair enough, um, fair enough. But I would say I would say the third incarnation of that book then is like it, it's terrible,
0: really, really bad, but it's also fascinating. Oh yeah, um, it's it, it's I had no idea what I was reading. I so 7 started off just kind of weird. Um I, I just I I didn't really care for the writing at all. Um especially like three pages of Green Arrow just like talking to himself, monologuing was kind of strange and then I uh, from there it just seemed like this complete whirlwind just taking us halfway around the world for no particular reason. And then I opened the next issue, and I thought I had skipped a couple issues in between. Like, I had no idea what was happening. Green Arrow was, like, in the Antarctic fighting mutant polar bears um, after being on a plane, like, in the previous issue. The time jump was never explained, as far as I could tell. No, and what was—the weirdest thing to me was so— I mean, I understand that switching up the writer, you're going to get a
1: slight change in in voice and tone. But Green Arrow reads like a completely different character in issue 7 than he did in issue 6. All of a sudden— all of a sudden, he's like a a, a hard boiled noir character who's not written very well. But also, all of a sudden, he's having like four ways in the like in issue seven. Like yeah. the, the strange, really sexual tone the book
0: took on was was deeply confusing to me. <laughs> Everything about the book just became beyond bizarre. It was like w- reading some sort of weird fever dream, like from one issue to the next. And the thing that really struck me about it was, I don't think it. I I got the distinct impression that Anne Nascenti had just a number of stories lying around, like kind of half formed, just ideas jotted down in a notebook. That when she got the Green Arrow assignment, just decided to just start tossing them out there. And Green Arrow seemed very incidental to me to a lot of stuff that was going on. Like his, aside from the fact that he was kind of rewritten in a very strange way, there was nothing about any of these stories in that latter half of the. 12 issues the first year those last six issues that really said this is a green arrow story this is an oliver queen problem this is why um this is perfect for green arrow rather than batman or superman or something like that it just seemed like she just needed a protagonist to go through these the motions of these stories she had lying around yeah things
1: just seem to be happening throughout those issues and like one of my one of my favorite things is that There was an offhanded reference in, I think, 7 or 8 to the fact that Oliver Queen was eventually going to be in this poker uh, tournament for charity, and I was like, okay, so it's sort of, you know, your standard Bruce Wayne, Tony Stark, like, billionaire doing this charity line, like, see, he's got a life, he does weird things like this on the side, and then all of a sudden that becomes, like, a huge thing later, and you're like, okay, so really she was laying the groundwork for this story that doesn't seem to be going anywhere or doesn't seem to have any significance issues back. Um, and yeah, you know, if you're, if you're going to be laying foreshadowing, that seems like weird foreshadowing to do to me.
0: Absolutely. And this isn't really on Anasenti's shoulders, even though that I, I really question the decision of handing the book over to her because what little characterization was established in the first six issues was just kind of tossed out the window to some of the most bizarre mainstream comics I have ever read. Um, But the one thing I really didn't like about the New 52 incarnation of Green Arrow was it was a character who Green Arrow was a character who started his existence being a very much a very obvious carbon copy knockoff of Batman to the extent that he had an arrow cave, he had an arrow car, he had an aeroplane. <laughs> yes, he had an aeroplane. That's um, awesome. But and it was only in the uh, in the in the 70s um, that they started to differentiate the character, uh, bringing around this idea of that. He, yeah, he was very similar to Bruce Wayne at one point, but basically became this diehard crusader for the little guy um, and started giving away all the money that he had amassed, um, living absolutely on the barest of his means and becoming a social crusader and an absolute thorn in the side of some of the more establishment-minded heroes, even to a point of he was he was kind of to a lot of his um teammates and contemporaries, the most annoying guy in the room because he was just this loud-mouthed, diehard liberal, and was that seemed to just that uniqueness of the character was just completely lost in the new 52, which I thought was a shame because now what do we have? I mean, quality of the story aside, can like it this seems like any of the Green Arrow stories in those first six issues could have easily subbed in Batman and be relatively very similar.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, you always pitched Green Arrow to me as a book I should eventually read, like a character I should get into, because he was so different than the other heroes in this, you know, and the idea of a a diehard liberal superhero is is interesting. Like, taking a political bent on that is something that I find intriguing. And what I read in The New 52 is this character who is, I mean, honestly, the blandest of the superheroes I've, I've been reading in the last year. Absolutely. There's nothing that you can tell him apart from anyone else except that he shoots arrows. And even that, you've got Hawkeye over in Marvel who has a character and also does the same thing.
0: (laughs) This was one of the major missteps of the New 52 for me because you took one of the most unique and interesting characters they had. And for anyone who doesn't believe me on that, I would say check out Brad Meltzer's work on the book, uh, Judd Vinnick's work on the book, uh, even the Kevin Smith relaunch where you see Green Arrows as very, very flawed family man, and it's it's possibly one of the darkest heroes that DC has in its stable, and you took all that and you made him, as you said, one of the blandest, most generic examples of superheroes out there, Um, and it's it's a real shame, unfortunately. I hope that future writers start to realign him and bring him back a little bit closer to his roots.
1: Let me ask you this. Uh, Would you consider... Stepping back in and checking out Green Arrow, several issues down the line once you've backlogged a little bit, just to see how much weirder it's gotten. Because, frankly, after reading these issues, I uh, like I said, I can't recommend it to anyone because it's bad, but it's so random and weird that I might want to see it just for, for the laugh factor and for how like strange and fascinating the awfulness is.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm morbidly curious now. I, I'm terrified to see where we are in like, the next four to five issues, but I kind of <laughs> want to see I have no idea where it's gonna be, but I bet it's gonna be something we couldn't possibly predict. I will I will bet you right now that Green Harrow has like six arms and three bows the next time we check out this book. <laughs> Would not surprise me. That's how strange the book's gotten. Absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to Catwoman. Uh, Catwoman was a book that got a lot of criticism right off the get-go. Um, It caused a big stir because the first issue ended basically with uh, Catwoman and Batman just banging on the rooftop of some building somewhere, and it, it was pretty graphic in the art, and the comic kind of caused a lot of a stir and rose some lingering questions about sexism in DC Comics and comics in general, but going back, having not read anything more than the first issue until catching up recently, when I went back and I read subsequent issues, I did not actually hate the book as much as I was expecting to. I actually, I, I wouldn't say that I loved it, but I didn't find it to be all bad, and I even found a few things there worth liking, and given time and to grow, that might have actually positioned itself as a stronger book. What did you think, Jordan? I, I don't disagree. So My thing is, the problem with the Cat, the
1: first issue of Catwoman bothered me, like enough that I wasn't going to read it again, because it was, it felt, like, very, very sexist. It was very, you know, beef cheesecake, I think is the word, where, yeah. you know, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of the female form and uh, exploiting that and making Catwoman this hypersexual character. And that didn't really go away. It started to fade more as the issues went on, but there was still a little bit of the cheesecake that I didn't like. But I think the more of the book I read, the more I saw that Winnick was actually doing something with that, where, I mean, he's... He, he, it's Catwoman's always sort of a noir character, and there's there is a sexuality, there's a sexual element to a lot of, of noir that I think Winnick is playing off of in the book, and I I I mean it was definitely less offensive to me as I read more of it. Um and a lot of the the better elements that the first issue kinda discarded grew and and were more interesting. So I still I would say there are some things in any given issue that might be problematic. Some issues there are a lot of things, some issues there are almost none. Um, so on that front, there's still some stuff that bugs me about the book, but it's, I can see that Winnick is doing something that's not as offensive as what I originally thought. And that is, yeah, potentially interesting. I mean, given time, this, this book might become something that's actually worth reading.
0: Well, more on that note in a minute, but I I will agree with you on a lot of things. I, I definitely dislike the art to be, I, I think that a lot of our complaints about the book being cheesecakey and sexist. Although some many of them do stem from writing himself, I think uh, Jilam March's art is just absolutely over the top to a point where it's like I I don't want to be like I, I I'm embarrassed to be reading something like that. If someone were to see me like looking at this, I I would be frankly embarrassed. Like honestly, it's it's just completely unproportional. It's uh, grossly exaggerated and over the top cheesecakey. But absolutely in terms of story direction, I I kind of like the whole thing where it's just like it this one job she does kind of leads it's just it, everything just keeps snowballing getting worse and worse and worse and it's not like a typical superhero or anti-hero book it's just it's about her career as a thief running afoul of like really nasty people and the consequences that come from each subsequent interaction which I thought was kind of a cool direction for the book and maybe with a different artist and a few tweaks here and there a book that I would want to read but um it just it always fell kind of short of the mark for me. It never, it always showed potential, but never really grabbed me. It's something I would definitely want to commit to following on a long-term basis. I think I have two things to say to that. First, I agree with you on the story, and that's that I think is part of the noir
1: thing that I I feel Winnick is doing there, where it's like a lot of great noir comes from, you know, this one small incident that spins way out of control, and things, you know, ties in a lot more people and goes in a lot of strange directions. That's, you know, that's kind of a noir trope, and especially... and I think that that, that Winnick is doing it very well in that, yeah, it's this one little, you know, this little job that she pulls that keeps spinning off different things and pulling in different people and making her life worse and worse and worse. And that is an interesting way to do the book. And I, it's a book that I will definitely revisit. I, I don't know that I'm going to be keeping up well, with it on a monthly basis.
0: Keep uh, keep that on the ba- clear your mind for a second because actually Judd Winnick is out as of the Zero issue and the new writer is none other than Ann Ascenti.
1: Well, then I'm definitely going to check it out because maybe it's (laughs) going to go completely insane. (laughs) Um, Well, that's disappointing. But on the art note, I wanted to say one thing that I kept saying. This is... uh, I don't like the term that I'm about to use, but I think it's most accurate. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the meme from uh, the presidential primary campaign this season of Michelle Bachman's crazy eyes. Uh, Uh, Yeah, Uh, yes, I am. Catwoman had crazy Bachman eyes in, like, every single issue. There's, like, there's a a uh, wide-eyed shot of her where she looks like an insane person.
0: Yeah. And that's, I've, like, I've that really was the
1: weird, weird it. artistic touch that really irked me. Um, so I agree that I, the art needs work, and that's disappointing that, that Winnick is leaving because while I don't think he's been doing a great book, I think he's been doing a book that's interesting enough and has enough potential that I would have checked back. I would have, I would probably waited six or seven months, gone out and grabbed those issues, and, and seen if the book became more worthwhile. But I definitely would have looked back into it. And now I'll probably, I'll probably see if is going to go insane on it. Um, but if not, then it's probably not going to be a book that I'm going to read now.
0: Yeah, had Winnick stayed with the book, I probably too would have checked it out again. Because I, I definitely think that the noir elements and the snowballing um, consequences of it just made a very different book from the rest of the offerings of The New 52. And it's kind of sad to see when it go right now because he's leaving both of the books he's doing right now, and he he's never been a extremely popular writer, and he's usually been a very controversial writer, polarizing fans in one direction or the other. You either kind of love him or hate him, but um, he's he's definitely a writer that I always felt like was worth checking out because he, he sometimes he would hit, and when he hit, he really hit hard. Well,
1: uh, just as a side note, the other book, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is Batwing, correct? Correct, yes. Uh, That's actually one of the books I have stuck with for the entire year. Um, And again, it's never been a great book, but it's been a book that I stuck with, and it's been a book that I'm interested to see where it was going. So again, it's, it's kind of disappointing to hear that he's leaving, although I think there are things I might change about that book, and depending on who's writing it next... I'll probably give it give it a little bit to see if they take it in an interesting direction. But that's sure. that's been a book that's been more hit than miss to me. It's been doing cool things and it's been building a world that I am interested to see where it goes. So it's it's sad to see him walking off. Is he doing creator own stuff or does he not have plans announced yet?
0: I no plans have been announced. I get the impression that it is I mean, there there have been a lot of very public exits at DC this past year, and I get the distinct impression that this is just one more in the line. Fair enough. Okay, well, sorry to see him go, if only because I, I wanted to see where he was going, if you will. <laughs> same with me. Same with me. I, I can't agree more on that. But I think we've said all we can on that matter. If you agree, I'd say we should move on. To, Absolutely. Uh, one of the second wave launch of books, uh, even though 52 new series were launched that first year, those were not the only series that DC launched. Six books were canceled halfway through the year to make room for six new titles. And one of these titles that we're going to check in with right now was James Robinson and uh, Nicola Scott's Earth 2. So Earth 2 is, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, an alternate world uh, which was home to the Justice Society uh, characters in the old continuity um, and has been relaunched again. for, For a while in the old continuity, all the characters were on the same world but now they are back to being on separate worlds. The Justice League is on Earth-1, the, Je- the Society of America is on Earth-2, and Earth-2 has been reintroducing these characters with more of a younger, modern spin. Uh, only four issues have shipped so far, so I don't really know if we'll have a whole lot to say on this, but um, as one of the bigger books of the past uh, decade that DC has had success with, Justice Society of America... Uh, I thought it was worth checking in and just seeing what was going on with these characters. Uh, I have to say, I like the series. I don't really love it. It's kind of generic. I probably, if I skipped an issue, I don't know if I would come back, just because even though I like it... I think the art is phenomenal, but um, I, I like it, but it just hasn't really shown itself to be anything hugely original or different to me.
1: Yeah, I uh, I definitely agree. I, so... At the time that Earth 2 launched, I was trying to get through Robinson's Starman from the 90s, which is, like, one of the all-time great comics runs, supposedly. And as as someone who, as you know, is trying to get more into comics as a, as a pop culture genre and trying to get some background, like you have in in the classics of the medium, I was reading that book, and I, you know, a lot of people I know have ribbed about it to me, and I couldn't get into it. It was like, I, I only got about 20 issues in, and I said, I can't do this anymore, like, I'm just going to put it on a back burner, maybe I'll come back to it. So I wasn't too excited uh, for the launch of this book. Also, I don't have an investment in any of the Justice Society characters because I've never read Justice Society of America, so I'm not the guy that this book was launched for, Um, and it doesn't do a whole lot for me. You know, there was a lot of news about the fact that uh, Alan Scott, the Green Lantern of Earth 2, is gay, uh, which, great for more diversity in comics, I'm all in favor of that, but it's not really, you know, that's not part of the story so much as he has a lover that dies in the first, or the second issue, I guess. Um, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read it yet, sorry. <laughs> um, and that that seems to back burner that side of the story, which if that's, I mean, if that's going to be a strong characterization, uh, great, but it wasn't in what I read, you know. It was, it was sort of incidental to the character in a way that I'm fine with, you know, I don't think that it should be the center of the character, to, to be clear. I think that, it's something that's, that makes him potentially different than most of the superheroes out there right now. And it's it's something that has been mentioned and would be fine as part of a larger, well, more balanced character, but that's the only thing we have on him right now, and even that seems sort of like, okay, but also, he's just a guy, you know? Yeah. And um, the same goes for Jay Garrick, who is the Flash of Earth 2. All I got on him was, like, he's a guy who happened to be in the right place at the right time, and now he can run really fast.
0: Yeah, I... Definitely think the book, um, I'm a little more uh, a fan of how Alan Scott has been handled because it it definitely feels like his sexual orientation felt less like publicity grabbing and more like just like natural. Oh, this is part of his character, Uh, even though it hasn't been dealt with too much at the moment. I mean, it's just like it's 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 incidental to the story. It's not like read this book because. That's um, true, and which, I do like that about it. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely like that it's not like we got a gay
1: character, yay!
0: Yeah, which um, um, I, I mean, I think r- right around the same time, Marvel and over at Astonishing X Men was making a whole big deal about uh, the character North Star getting married, um, and it, it just seemed so out of left. F- well, not I mean, it was a character who had been in a relationship for a while, but it just seemed like such like a headline grabbing sort of event, whereas. I feel like the Green Arrow, the Green Lantern thing, had been planned for a while, and people were just like, "Oh, this will get some attention. We'll just announce this part early because it's happening anyway." Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm not reading Astonishing X Men, but I am familiar with the fact that
1: Northstar is getting married because it's been everywhere. Oh yeah, the... um, and I, I mean, I liked the character of Northstar when I've come across him in some of my reading back issues to try to burgeon my comics knowledge, and I, I think that 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 might have felt natural. I don't know I'm, because I'm not reading the book. Um, it's too early for me to say whether whether Alan Scott's sexuality is a natural evolution of the character or whether it's a bit headline-grabbing. Yeah. Um, right now, it feels kind of like neither, um, which is fine with me uh, if he becomes a character that's interesting.
0: Sure. Um, I and, Oh, go okay. ahead. Okay, oh. so um, I, I just want to mention right here that for me, I think the big loss here was, and I... I will say that a lot of the books that were weak in the New 52 were the books that lost their hook. Green Arrow, we just discussed a minute ago. And I think Justice Society, well, Earth 2 now, is definitely falls into that category. One of the big initiatives of the New 52 was a universe that hasn't been around forever. They wanted like superheroes to be a little bit more of a novel thing. They wanted the heroes to be less experienced. And I get that. I get the decisions that were made there. And so the Justice Society in the old continuity were the superheroes of World War II. So if superheroes have been around for 50 plus years, it just doesn't work with this whole idea they're going for of this is a new and novel thing. The world is changing. It's kind of scary. It's exciting, but it's very frightening at the same time. So the Justice Society as they were had to go. And but placing them on this other world, you had the opportunity to keep the hook, which I always thought the reason why the Justice Society was interesting and not just a carbon copy clone team of the League was that you had this generational gap. You had heroes that were older who had served during the time of World War II, and you had the sons and daughters or the grandchildren serving with them, like living up to their parents' legacies, learning how to be heroes under the eyes of the greatest generation. And now with Earth 2, we've lost that. We have these characters have been de-aged. They're all in their 20s, roughly. Same as the other DC universe. the uh, Same as the Justice League universe. And it's just... It, it kind of suffers from that old idea of, well, this isn't the main continuity, so why does it matter? If that makes sense. No, I think it
1: does. Um, Because to me, that would be a great hook for a book. I would love to read a book about aging superheroes and how they deal with those issues and yeah i mean passing on the torch i think those are interesting things i haven't read the classic runs of justice society but those are things that sound something i want to read about whereas right now just uh, earth 2 is having a lot of the problems i think we might discuss in a minute uh when we talk about justice league uh which is getting getting it off the ground getting these heroes together into a team it's kind of a painstaking process um and having just read that on justice league i'm with characters that I'm at least more familiar with, I'm not getting that into Earth Two. You know, it, it's uh, there are great challenges ahead for these heroes, but I'm not invested in these heroes. I guess so. Yeah. it's it's good. that book has an uphill climb to uh, keep me around. I think it's something I. If you tell me to check it out again
0: in six or seven months, I will. But otherwise, I don't think I'll be going back to it. I can't promise I'll be around six to seven months either. To be honest with you. Um. Okay. So we're let's let's keep this moving along. Um. And let's say over to a book that. Um, we just mentioned, Justice League, the flagship of the New 52, the first book to launch, under the very exciting creative team pairing of Jeff Johns and Jim Lee, two of the biggest names working in comics right now. This was the first book DC announced. It was the book that got most fans talking, and as expected, it has sold like gangbusters. Um, However, critically it's been a bit of a rough journey for this book. It's definitely not even close to being one of the worst books of the new 52, but it has always kind of languished sort of, at least for me, sort of in the middle, maybe a little bit above the middle of the pack, but never really reached the heights promised by such a marriage of stars as Jeff Johns, Jim Lee, and all the big guns of the DC universe, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern together under one roof. Uh, I, would you agree with me? I'm pretty sure that you would.
1: Yeah, I, uh, so, I mean, this is not a book that I, I've considered dropping even once over the course of the year. So, yeah, it's not one of the worst books um, that came out of the U. but it's definitely a middle-of-the-pack book for me. When I'm, reading, when I'm reading my books, it's something that I read earlier. You know, I save my favorite books for, for later in, in my reading, and it's always an earlier book. It's something that, that I, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll read what's going on next. Uh, and I think it's been more hit-or-miss than I would have expected based on the titanic amount of talent that went into this.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I I think a lot of the problem that came for me was that... I, and I understand that this is where Johns was going with the story. The whole idea was like, these are big personalities. Throwing them into the same room together, making them into a team, isn't an easy process. It takes time. But the what we got out of the first year of the book was basically two big stories. And so you never really got to see any sort of gradual progression. It was two big stories. So it's like, you're going to see the league basically in the same place for both of those stories. Uh, and I, I'm not crazy about this idea of like the book being about like when these people are in the room, they bring out the worst in each other rather than the best in each other. It it should be absolutely the opposite way around. Like the, the heroes, like they come together because they need each other. They need their support. And they should be made better by their associations, not devolve into bickering and inviting as seemed to happen in most every issue. It was it it, it was very much a display of posturing on all the characters. And um, Johns, who's usually great at um, fueling a team book, is one of the best in the business, I think, at juggling a large cast, uh, seemed to have a little bit of trouble playing these characters off each other. Everybody seeming to only um, speak and catch in catchphrases and quick little descriptors that offer one facet of their personality rather than presenting them as more well-rounded characters. I'll
1: agree with you on half of that. I think that Johns was writing these characters as the most two-dimensional version of them possible. Like, Green Lantern is the cocky one. Batman is the broody one. And um, yeah. I never got I never got the feeling they were full characters. But actually... As someone who's less sold on the Justice League as an idea for a book, um, as someone who thinks like there there are so many big guns there that there's always going to have to be these huge threats, and that oftentimes it's going to be less subtle as a result. um, I actually I think the infighting is an interesting way to handle it. Uh, Obviously, I think that I like the idea of these people having these this history, which the New Fifty Two kind of erased, Um, and so if I was reading an older Justice League you know a, a more classic version of the run I think watching them bring out the best in each other might be a good thing but in the early going I actually think that it's an interesting idea to have them not like each other because what you've got here is people who are so powerful they're basically gods walking among men and each of them has in the DCU, that sort of has their own sphere of influence and their own area that they are, you know, a god in, basically. So if you're hanging out in, in Metropolis, Superman is basically the, the the god that rules over your area, you know, that protects you from ill. And having putting them all in a room and having them snipe at each other for a while, I actually think is an interesting way to do it. Though I don't know if it's played out in the ideal way. <laughs>
0: I'll agree with that. I, I I definitely think that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I just don't know that it has been the most entertaining in the sense that, uh, as you said before, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think you've sold me on the potential of that dynamic. But with the characters, as you said, being so one-dimensional, with basically each one of them comes down to one trait. Flash is the nice guy. Aquaman is the... Like thinks he should be in charge. It just it just doesn't work as well. It... I agree. I think I think you need to have uh, more well rounded, balanced characters because these guys,
1: you know, they're they're not pissy children. Yeah. They're they're people who are incredibly competent at what they do, and the problem is that they each think they're the best.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that's potentially that that's really come across. I I don't think at least think, not in the way it should have. I think I hit on this a little bit during our Earth Two,
1: and you hit on it uh, when you were introducing the book. But I think the big problem was that the, these arcs were long. And the first arc especially, you know, the introduction of the Justice League, was it was six issues, wasn't it?
0: Yes. And yeah. I was,
1: you know, each month I was like, okay, but this isn't going anywhere. Like, just, I want, I, I know they're getting together. Um, and the, the origin story of the league was not fascinating enough to me to have gripped me for those six months. So I was reading it, waiting to see what it looked like when the team got together. And that's, I don't think, what Jeff Johns was going for.
0: Yeah, the, the opening story, the longest story arc today of the Justice League was, it, it was very awkwardly paced, I felt. And I think that undercut a lot of momentum from what was probably one of the most exciting launches to come out of the initiative. And as a result, it was kind of, the book was kind of playing catch up right from the get go. I definitely think that the um, the second major arc, uh, the one that just played out over the past few issues, was a huge improvement. Uh, It shows a lot of potential heading into year two. I'm very excited about where we're going in year two and about a lot of the changes that were made in this towards the end of the first year. Uh, You have the Justice League kind of cutting some more of its ties with um, the established authorities. You have a couple members leaving the team. You have uh, the very, much-hyped um, romantic pairing of Superman and Wonder Woman going into year two, which is sure to shake up the dynamic of power. It it just definitely felt like this is where we should have been three months in, not 12 months in with this. I agree. I think
1: I think it's going in really cool directions. I'm yeah. um, actually, that's, a, I mean, it's a book I'm very excited about where it's going to go. Um, I wish it had gotten there faster, but obviously this this is not a book I'll be dropping anytime soon. In another 12 issues, I'll probably still be
0: reading it. Absolutely. I will too. And uh, I, I've heard a rumor flying around that uh, Ivan Reese is moving over from Aquaman to take on the art duties on this book, which um, I i mean, I love Ivan Reese. He's probably one of my favorite artists working at DC right now. So I think he would be a welcome addition. I mean, it would be sad to see Jim go, but I would prefer to see him pop in for a story arc every now and then. So he really has the lead time to make his art look as beautiful as we all know it can be. Absolutely. I agree. And Ivan Reese is doing great work on
1: Aquaman, so bring him on board. I'll be excited for it.
0: Cool. So let's seg right from Justice League over into one of its sister titles, Justice League Dark. This book started off by being written by Peter Milligan and recently uh, changed writers. And now Jeff Lemire is the new writer of the book uh, and has been the writer for about five issues recently. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this book was... I, it, it's been one of the rare moments where we've seen over the past year a lot of creative team shifts in the new 52. I, I did the math on it a little while back. I don't really remember the exact total, but I think somewhere around 22, no, 26 books experienced a writer change in the first um, 12. Months of so roughly half, roughly half the books. I, you it, see, they a little more or a little less, Exper- like changed writers, somewhere through that's that's a big turnover. Like, usually, I, I don't think that that's normal in terms of like a publishing line. I can't think of another time where I've seen that much turnover happen within one company in such a short span of time. And a lot of the books didn't, some of them improved, some of them didn't. For the most part, it was either the new writer would kind of maintain the quality level or the quality level would kind of drop with the new writer coming in, which I tend to understand just because I feel like a lot of these change ups were due to difference between writers and editorials. So I think a lot of these writers were kind of brought in at the last moment and kind of thrown into the deep end and asked to write a sinking ship. Um, not in every case, not in every case by any means, but I think, I think a lot of these writers that were brought in didn't have a lot of lead time to kind of figure out what they wanted to do with their book. Justice League Dark, on the other hand, I thought got remarkably better with the addition of Jeff Lemire. I think Lemire really wanted the title. He was really excited about it. And as soon as he got on, he sent it off in a direction that has made me an ardent fan of the book. It is quickly climbing my list of favorite titles of DC right now. And I am just beyond excited to see where it goes next. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I liked the book that Millikan was writing.
1: Um, it was something that I wasn't... It wasn't something I was going to drop, but it was definitely something that was more, like, on my bubble... It was a bubble book, you know? It was something I was yeah. reading, and I, I liked it. It was fine. Um, it didn't ever get my juices flowing. And all of... When, when uh, Lemire took over, it was... Immediately, it became, like, a a, a huge titanic leap up, you know? I I, I I don't know if I can stress enough how much better the book got within that single issue. Oh, I neither. think yeah. I think the, the writing of... Uh, John Constantine alone became like, he became exactly what I'd always thought of when I thought of Constantine, a character I hadn't read before. But I always thought of him as, you know, this this quippy, difficult to deal with, cynical uh, badass. And that's exactly what he felt like from, from the
0: get-go. The, the thing that, I, uh, that most excites me about the title right now is that you have this nice little core group of characters uh, that Lemire has chosen to focus on. It's like three or four core characters. And around them, he's basically created this revolving door of all the magic based or horror based characters and concepts and ideas that are being put into play and characters will come in for a few issues and work with the team and leave as they're needed. You were going to different locales that are important in the history of the magical side of the DC universe. It just really feels like a tour de force of that particular uh, aspect of the fictional universe, which I think is great because it really does feel like anybody and anything can pop up next. Yeah, absolutely. I am very excited to see where this book goes. And I think
1: of the writer shifts, um, just as a quick aside, several of the books that I was reading uh, when they shifted writers, I dropped. Um, Stormwatch is my most prominent example. I was loving that book. When Paul Cornell left Stormwatch, I, I left.
0: Um, I, so, I'm right there with you. I That was one of my favorite books at the outset of the new 52. I was so excited for where Stormwatch was going. Uh, but when Paul Cornell left, all the magic for me left too. So Um, that's a real shame. Lemire has become one of the all-stars of The New 52, if you ask me. We'll be
1: talking about another of his books in a few minutes, I think. Um, But he's just been killing whatever he's been handed, uh, and giving him this book made me excited, and he's just delivered. It's been fantastic.
0: Absolutely, and I'm kind of looking forward to it. I've been hearing a lot on Twitter that Jeff Johns and Jeff Lemire are cooking something up. Uh, a crossover of sorts between their books, so I'm excited for that to happen at some point too. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so we just mentioned Paul Cornell. He started writing two titles in the New Fifty Two. Uh, he left Stormwatch, um, but he is still sticking with his book Demon Knights, which focuses on a team of heroes who is set in the past, uh, and they are knights uh, questing under the direction of Etrigan the Demon. And they just faced off against um in sort of like a medieval Magnificent Seven sort of arc and they are now on a quest to find Camelot. So it's it's definitely a very different kind of book uh than a lot of what's being published at the by DC right now and extremely different from anything DC had been publishing uh in the years before the relaunch. Uh it was an exciting concept, like medieval superheroes just sounded really cool to me right off the bat and uh for the most part i think it has been a very satisfying read
1: i would agree um again this is this is a problem i had with a lot of dc's books and demon knights to be clear was always a book that i was going to keep reading but that first magnificent seven as you said seven samurai as i was thinking about it that first story uh drug a little bit it, it took some time to get where it was going. And it was always, it was always interesting, but what they did as soon as that story was ending with the idea of like the, the multiple versions of Camelot and Camelot is this ideal and the, and the group hunting for Camelot has become a story that I'm definitely invested in. It's a, it's a book that I was, like I said, I was always going to keep reading, but I was less excited about it in the first arc than I am now. It's definitely something that's jumped up in the last few issues for me.
0: Yeah. I think I, I would agree with you on that. It did seem to have a pacing problem at the beginning, but Ever since those, we've moved past those first few issues, uh, the pacing problem has definitely been addressed. Uh, things seem to be moving along at a very nice clip, and uh, I, I can't say enough good things about Paul Cornell. He's one of uh, the talents to really watch at DC right now. Uh, I think more than any other writer they have in their stable, he's, he's very witty, and he kind of sees opportunities to bring in uh, a lot of ideas we haven't really seen before uh vandal savage has just been the breakout character of that book he steals every scene he's in i find him hilarious every time he's on the page i'm i I usually get at least one laugh out loud moment um and i before you wouldn't have thought that from like he was a kind of raz al ghul clone kind of character who would just show up every now and then and be immortal for a little while and then go away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he is—he is definitely, I think for me, been the breakout character of that series, and kudos to Paul Cornell for recognizing that potential there. I agree, and yeah, I, I mean, Paul Cornell was writing Stormwatch
1: and Demonites, which were two two of the most different books DC was putting out, and different in very different ways. So he was doing two books that were were outside the box in ways that I was really fascinated by, and pulling them both off incredibly well. So this is a guy who can write... Very different stories, pack them full of great ideas, and get really good characterization, which is a problem we've talked about in some of the other books. But I never had that problem with Demon Knights, even when it was having some pacing issues. I knew who the, I, I, didn't know any of these characters at all except slightly Ettrick and the demon before reading Demon Knights. I'm, I'm still only vaguely familiar with, with most of them having read this book for a year, but I know who they all are in the book. I know the role they play. I know what they stand for, and I think the same was true of his Stormwatch. So. Absolutely. He's definitely one of the like, writers to watch for me, and when he's writing a new project, I'll be there.
0: Yeah, I would, I would love to see uh, Paul Cornell being fast-tracked in the same way that Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire have because I definitely think he is one of the freshest, most imaginative voices that DC has going for them right now, and I would just love to see more work from him. Absolutely. Okay, so let's... While we're talking about Lemire and Snyder, we can go ahead and transition, right? A perfect segue. Yes, so we're going to discuss the next two books kind of as one, uh, which is a little bit of a cheat since we said we were going to discuss ten books, but we're going to do it anyway. So we're going to be talking about Swamp Thing and Animal Man, uh, the two flagship titles of the Dark line of DC's new 52 launch. And um, while I was definitely expecting there to be a new Swamp Thing book, Animal Man was kind of a surprise. Um, swamp thing was built up uh very much in towards the end of the old dc continuity during their brightest day miniseries a lot of, the big climax of that series was swamp thing returning to dcu he had been a character that for years and years although he had started off in the dc universe had been acquired by their mature horror imprint vertigo and had not interacted with any of the mainstream superhero characters for years. So Brightest Day brought him back, and when a new relaunch was a lot, was announced, it was heavily suspected that there would be a Swamp Thing book. Scott Snyder launched it with Yannick Paquette on art, and right from the get-go, um, I think it proved that a horror title could exist in an all-ages imprint. You could do good horror without having the freedom of a mature reader's tag on the book because it is from the right from the get-go it was one of the creepiest and most suspenseful titles dc was publishing i can't say not enough good things about it it was just great great dark book right from the get-go
1: yeah i, I think we're we're getting to the point where i'll be doing a lot of gushing for the rest of, of the podcast because oh, i'm sure. swamp thing and animal man while well, we're talking about them as as one sort of were my probably my two favorite issues of of the the relaunch, you know, when we were reading the number ones, those were two books that I was, I, you know, I wasn't, I was going to read Swamp Thing because of Scott Snyder, and I'd recently been reading some of his stuff, and I was loving it, so I was, I was, I was going to be reading that, but I was surprised by how amazing it was, and Animal Man came out of nowhere for me, those two books swept me off my feet, and they've kept me off my feet, they've been having incredible years, they're, they've been doing, and I've talked a lot about arcs that drug too long, drug on too long. They're technically still telling the same story they were twelve issues ago, and it hasn't gotten boring for a
0: second. Oh, not at all! And right from you, you had this idea that they were going, like they were on this trajectory to meet up, I, like in those first few issues. And I'm so glad that they just embraced that, and they've both been kind of telling like the same story from two different perspectives. and Now we're starting to intertwine, and they're both, the, both characters have met recently, and they're starting to try and tackle the same problem, this problem of. Um, the forces of death and rot kind of overrunning the DC universe together and I just going back to what you said a minute ago for me animal man was animal man number one was my biggest surprise from the relaunch I wasn't first of all I was not suspecting that we were gonna get a new animal man series I didn't suspect the direction that Jeff Lemire was gonna take it in and I didn't suspect to be as shocked as I was by that first issue that last page in that first issue is still probably one of the creepiest and most best cliffhangers to come out of the new 52 as a whole. I, I can't say enough good things about that first issue. And I, I think it's a very different book from, I know I've said that about probably two or three things that we've uh, talked about so far, but animal man to me feels like more of an, more of a creator owned, more of a book being approached with kind of an indie sensibility. It's not really a superhero title. It's just kind of about this guy who has these powers and he's just trying to keep his family safe, and both the writing and the art kind of set it apart from a lot of other titles that DC is publishing right now. It definitely doesn't feel like anything else they have going, with the exception of Swamp Thing. I agree, and it's funny because, like I said, I've
1: talked about pacing issues several times, and if you you tried to break down the story for someone who hadn't read the book and said, you know, Animal Man spends the last five or six issues of the books knowing he's looking for Swamp Thing. Like, that's that's his goal. And he just finally has met him. So you would think that it would be going slow, but it's never felt that way. It's always been very... each each. Both Animal Man and Swamp Thing has been sort of pulse-pounding on a monthly basis. And it's, it's amazing to me that they've kept this story going for as long as they have and made me as interested. And... I'm actually pissed that we're taking next month off for the zero issues because I'm so into the crossover that's finally started.
0: Oh, I agree with you. And I think that's a hallmark of a great book that we just cannot wait to get our hands on the next installments of it. Absolutely. Yeah. My my only complaint is, and this isn't a huge one, I, I kind of almost wish that they didn't ship in the same week because, I mean, since they're so closely intertwined, it could almost feel like we're getting a bi-monthly book if they were shipping like one week apart or something like that. But again, that's the most minor complaint I think I could possibly have with the series. <laughs> Yeah. Um, is there anything more you want to say on that? Or should we... Uh,
1: um,
0: I think that's it. Let's go ahead
1: and move on. Uh, give me one second. So go ahead and pitch us the next book.
0: Okay, so the next book that we're going to do is a title that was probably one of the least affected by the New 52, but remains one of the best. We're, of course, talking about Scott Snyder's Batman. Scott Snyder started off his career in the Bat Books working on Detective Comics, prior to the New 52 relaunch, it was a book that focused on Dick Grayson during his time wearing the Bat suit, But now we have... Uh, now we have him taking transitioning over to the flagship Batman title and focusing on Bruce Wayne. And the past year has been one big story arc that has dealt with Bruce Wayne coming to terms with the idea that maybe he doesn't know Gotham City quite as well as he thinks he does. Maybe there is this secret cabal in Gotham that has been operating there for years without any sort of knowledge on Bruce's part. And this is another example of a story that has been so expertly paced. This we've been dealing with the court of owls for 12 issues straight, and it has been a phenomenal story. It has been a great thrill ride and definitely month in month out, the best if not possibly a contender for the best book of with one other title that we're going to discuss in a second but i think it's definitely their number one book
1: yeah it's yeah. it's absolutely up there um i make no bones about the fact that batman is my guy that's i mean before i read comics he was my favorite superhero the i read pretty much all the batman books with few exceptions that dc puts out i it if i had a superhero he's my guy so i was going to be reading this book either way but snyder just has been killing it. I mean, you had me reading his Detective Comics before I was even reading Monthly because it was so good and he blew that away. It was one of the best Batman stories I've ever read and it wasn't even about Bruce Wayne. So to get him writing Bruce Wayne was huge to me and he's done sort of the similar thing that he did with Dick Grayson where he's turned Gotham itself into the villain for these people in a way that's fascinating and... You know, he said originally he was doing his Court of Owls story and he wasn't going to stay in the book, probably. And now he's on the book for longer and he's going to do a Joker story in the next few months. I could not be more excited.
0: Oh, me either. I cannot get enough of Scott Snyder on Batman. It's is a match made in heaven for me. The book is so... It's taken on... I, this is an element that probably should have always been there, but it, it's be, taken on sort of a very creepy horror-esque vibe to it in places. Like uh, there, I forget what issue it was, but there was this scene where... Bruce is going around to all the different buildings he owns in the city, and he's finding these secret compartments and chambers in there where the owls have these secret, like, bases set up in all of them. And it was just, um, like, it's not often that a comic will make a chill run up my spine, and that, that definitely happened to me while I was reading that sequence. And that just speaks to the talent of Scott Snyder to write a such a suspenseful, um, terrifying story and weave in these new villains in a way that makes them so credible and so much fan favorites when you have such a great bat rogues gallery to draw on from the beginning.
1: Yeah, one of the things that Snyder has done incredibly well is right, he's writing two great horror books. And I as a big Batman fan, my ideal Batman stories have that element of psychological terror to them because Batman is a guy who first of all himself may very well be insane, but also he fights psychopaths. More than other super other supervillains fight these colorful you know, villains, or, you know, they fight characters who are more traditional bad guys. Yeah. Batman fights crazy people. And to me, that's scary. And I love that Snyder is willing to embrace that and make Batman's books scary. The villains he's introducing are, you know, they have elements of horror to them, and I think that's fascinating. And he's he writes Batman the way I dream, Batman be, I dream of Batman being written. So, I mean, I can't say enough good things about that book. And since it's my favorite character going into reading these books it's been just amazing.
0: And really quickly on the element of psychological terror, I think, uh, the, the entire creative team, we, we've been talking a lot about Scott Snyder, but Greg Capullo has just been killing it on art. I I absolutely love how he portrays Bruce and Gotham city and, um, Gotham city has become so much more of a defined distinct and almost a character unto itself, like under their tenure on the book. I feel like I know Gotham city so well just from their, portrayal alone of it if not for like past incarnations of how the city was presented but those two have really for me created my definitive idea of what gotham city is and one of the one of the coolest things i think they did um in terms of presenting this element of psychological terror you were talking about a second ago was um issue number five where uh bruce is in the labyrinth and yes as i'm you gonna go, bring that up yeah as, so as you're going on um, the page layouts change, so you have to turn the book on its side to continue, like view it, and then eventually you have to turn the book upside down to keep following it. And it was just such a cool—I—I'd uh, I, never seen that done in a book before. It was just such an inventive way to convey to throw you of off your game and to exactly make you feel as disoriented as Batman himself was feeling in the issue. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I love that issue to this day.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that would be one of the hallmark issues of the first year to me. It, was, it knocked my socks off. It was amazing. I, I can't wait for more of this. I think Scott Snyder could very well be writing my definitive Batman. And I hope he stays in the book for so much longer that uh, he can touch a lot of a lot of the great Bat bases, you know, deal with a lot of the different Bat rogues, create his own, because he's been doing some great work of creating villains that I think will be around for a while. Um, Absolutely, and I'm, I'm looking to see more original villains. I'm looking to see what he does with more of the classic rogues. So I hope he sticks around for a while because he's just killing this book.
0: And I would, the only thing that has makes me hesitate in any way of saying that this is definitively my favorite book of the new 52 is that one other title kind of came out of left field and has been neck and neck for me, at least month in, month out for Batman as the number one. What yeah this is a
1: book before we you know to build a little suspense this is a book that if you told me a year ago that i would be reading issue 12 of this book i would laugh in your face absolutely I, I can't wait for 13 it's been amazing
0: this is a character who i have never had any sort of interest in prior to now the new 52 relaunch i never understood the appeal i never understood the fan base um and just never connected with on any sort of means so the fact that this is Either my number one or number two book out of the relaunch, and definitely within my top 10 of books overall, is shocking to me, but I can't get enough of this book. It is uh, Wonder Woman by Brian Azzarello, and it is just absolutely fantastic. It has knocked my socks off from day one, and I continue to be impressed by this book.
1: It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. I mean, as we were talking about this the other day, and I think of it as Brian Azzarello's Wonder Woman. And, you know, when I think of Wonder Woman now, I think of the, the character as he's written her, the world he's created for her. He's changed the entire idea of the character for me, and he's done, I mean, an amazing year of stories, but also he's created a place that I can't wait to read more stories. I can't wait for him to go further in depth. I can't wait to see where this is going next.
0: Absolutely. I uh, this book has been a must read since the first issue. Cliff Chang's art is gorgeous. Phenomenal he, art. Yeah. He, he he writes like Wonder Woman as like he draws Wonder Woman as just so powerful and so kinetic. Like it, the fights are brutal. And his his designs for um the the Greek pantheon has been I, I think one of the best parts of the book because that's it's absolutely very... the
1: that's the highlight for me I I agree with you that he he draws the the fights very kinetically and very you get a feel for how Wonder Woman moves and how she fights in a way that that's not common to me reading superhero books but the thing that sets it apart to me is every time we're introduced to another member of the pantheon they look so different and so imaginative that I'm just I'm I'm blown away and I. I think that they, their designs say so much about their characters, but are also just so amazing to look at that I just want to see more.
0: Yeah. I, I, it's to the credit of these creators that they have, in, in 12 issues, sold me on the appeal of this character, made me understand what is so unique and great about her, and at the same time opened up this whole unique world for it. The problem, I think, with Wonder Woman in the old continuity was always this idea of um, why is there why is this a Wonder Woman problem versus like a Superman problem? They have like a very similar power levels and abilities. So it was always this idea of why is Wonder Woman fighting the supervillain as opposed to Superman. And although Greek mythology was brought into it before, I think firmly rooting her within the Greek pantheon, uh, the tweaks made to her origin, which ties her inextricably to this idea like she is involved in the dealings of the gods just gives her her own unique niche in the dc universe that is just as important as superman's and batman's area of expertise and she's protecting humanity from the gods themselves and i think that absolutely in one fell swoop just defined why wonder woman is a part of the trinity like it, th- there's always been this idea that it is the trinity of superman batman and wonder woman but while you can easily explain why superman and batman are a part of it it's always been a little harder to justify Wonder Woman's inclusion here. I think Brian Azzarello has ended that argument for, for me at least.
1: Yeah, he has justified. Yeah, for me it was always a question of why Wonder Woman. I guess because she's the female superhero and they want they want to play that up, um, which power you know great kudos to uh, woman power. And I think there have been some good runs on Wonder Woman in the past that I have not personally read, but I've read a lot about.
0: I, w- I will say that also. I, uh, I again I've never really read the great Wonder Woman runs so not to knock any... Of, I, I know that they're out there. I have not read them personally. Yeah, but, but I hear good things about the, what the book was doing
1: in the past, certainly. But this is just completely different, new, and, and vital in a way that I don't think the book was in the past, from you know, to my knowledge. And I think another thing the book has done well in 12 Issues is not only has it introduced this pantheon of gods, but it's given Wonder Woman an, uh, a relationship with each of them that is different and that, it, that in itself will create more story potential. You know, the way she interacts with each of these people is different and it's in flux, in very
0: interesting ways. Absolutely. Uh, I cannot say enough good things about this book. I was not expecting to love it as much as I have, and it has definitely been one of my favorites. Month in, month out is always, again, one of my most anticipated, and I savor it towards, like, the back of my reading pile because I know it's going to be a great way to end off on a strong note every time I crack open a new stack of comic books. It's, Absolutely uh i i again i'm upset well i I actually am looking forward to the zero issue because i recently read an interview where uh and chang were talking about their zero issue and apparently they're both very excited for it so if they're if they're hyping it up then i can't wait for it but i definitely am so excited to get into year two of wonder woman especially with the way that the last issue ended with this idea of spoiler alert uh, it looks like Wonder Woman is going to be the place where they're going to start to introduce the uh, Kirby characters, the New Gods again, um, Orion, and um, all those other characters that deal with um, Dark Side, the 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 opposite side of the coin of Dark Side, the the New Gods characters, and I am beyond excited to see how they're going to be factored into the pantheon of Greek deities that we've already been seeing over the past year. N-
1: knowing knowing nothing about them, I'm I'm excited to get into year two just because we got a huge betrayal at the end of the last issue that I'm interested to see how it plays out.
0: Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, so there's been betrayal, new allies, and now um, Hera is stuck with the group who's now mortal. It's, it's just been, it's such, I think, I, I also want to just stress something I kind of uh, overlooked when we were discussing this is Azarello has created a whole new supporting cast for Wonder Woman. And we, we talked about in the designs of the Greek gods, but like, we, we also have um, Zola. We have um, her her new half-brother. Um, it, it's just an entirely new group of characters has been introduced. And, and characters I'm all very interested in and, and just yeah. equally excited to follow into this next year.
1: Absolutely. No, Azarello has done... What your dream is for when a creator takes over a book. He's he's revitalized the character, he's done new things, and he's built a world that I think will continue even when he eventually leads the book, which I hope is years down the line. Oh yeah. Um I... but he's done he's done amazing, amazing work. And he's one of the the few books that I I am excited for the zero issue even. You know, most of these I feel like it's it's taking a month off of stories I'm interested in, but
0: whatever he wants to do with these characters in this book is gonna be great. And I think I, I kinda wanna try and as we wrap this up, bring it back to an idea I brought up earlier. I think part of the success of wonder woman boils down to where a lot of books in the new 52 either succeeded or failed. And I think that wonder woman was definitely a book where while it was a radically different interpretation of the character than I think what we've been used to in past years, it was an, it was an example of a writer refining the hook to the character, like looking at the character and thinking, what is it about this character that sets this, sets Wonder Woman apart from all the other heroes, all the other characters in available to us. Why is this a Wonder Woman story versus a Superman story or a Batman story? And keyed into that idea of like, let's bring it back to the Greek pantheon. Let's set this firmly in the world of the gods. Let's tweak the origin and just throw out all of what you knew and just kind of start over. Like it's going to be the same kind of character, like all like essentially Diana's going to be the same person. But let's explain some of the trappings of the character to a little bit of a more logical degree, and let's all root it in the Greek mythology. And I think rediscovering that hook, making everything hang from that, revolve around that central idea, has really been core to the title's success, as well as the great talent working on the book. Absolutely that's the I would say that's the one book if you're not reading that book or if you haven't thinking about reading it
1: and you're considering getting into the d c and you jump on board you will i I would say you'll love it
0: absolutely well okay so one year into the new fifty two uh, I'm still on board I'm still on board I'll be reading several of these books uh, probably even more
1: than I should be honestly <laughs> uh into the inevitable future cool. uh foreseeable future the future is inevitable but what I was referring to is the foreseeability <laughs> well <laughs> <laughs> whatever I've gone off the rails at this point Indeed. it's been a long time without that fan I'm not living in the wind tunnel <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, let's get back to the wind tunnel soon as possible well, uh, I do want to say I do want to say before we close up that
1: if you've been listening to this and if you've enjoyed it and if you want us to do more special one-off podcasts on comics or on other uh, genres as opposed to the mixture we usually try to throw in the regular show let us know at uh, review at gmail.com at on twitter at review named or on the website review let us know we'd be happy to do more special editions of the podcast
0: Absolutely, we would are always interested in talking about pop culture. As long as you guys want more of this stuff, we are happy to talk on for hours on end. Uh, thank you again for joining us. This has been a lot of fun for us. We hope it's been fun for you guys as well. Uh, as always, if you want more uh, comics reviews and comics commentary, look at ReviewToBeNamed.com dot comic section. And as for your rest of your pop culture needs, check out the rest of the site or the regular editions of the Review to Be Named podcasts. Uh thanks for listening, guys, and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.